Welcome back to the New Books Network's African American Studies channel. I am your host, Adam McNeil. And today, our guest scholar is Dr. Hillary Green from the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And she will converse with me about her book, published in 2016 by our friends at Fordham University Press, entitled Educational Reconstruction, African American Schools in the Urban South from 1865 to 1890. Welcome to the show, Dr. Green. Thank you for having me, Adam. Good, good, good. And so uh, before we get uh, knee deep into educational reconstruction, would you be able to tell uh, the, the audience here um, a bit about your, your, your path to uh, educational reconstruction? Uh, thank you. Um, first, I always had to acknowledge the inspiration, and that was my mother. Um, when I was mm. a graduate student at Tufts University and I was thinking about my MA thesis and I knew I wanted to look at reconstruction and education more broadly, but really look at reconstruction, I was talking about potential topics and she just asked, was there anything positive other than the black church that is created during reconstruction that survives Jim Crow? And I couldn't really answer. I'm like, well, there's public schools, but... Um, I'm not sure how they were able to survive it. And it was that question that guided me through this journey because it got me to think about not only why did public schools come out, but why didn't they collapse? What does it mean about having redemption and this these things that we should have known about Reconstruction? And then also the literature about Brown, where we mostly start the time start with Brown and then work backwards instead of going from the beginning, working forward. So that question took me on this multi-year journey to this book. And as I kept on refining it, thinking about sources, thinking about the pathway, I always came back to that question my mother asked me originally. And by the time I was done, it published, I'm like, yes, it was schools. Yes, this is why it survived. Mm-hmm. But it was that simple question she asked I couldn't answer right away. You got to love these stories about what inspires people to write books. And and, it, and it's so profound hearing that it was that that it's never that abstract thing. Right. It's always that that very simple question that stumps you uh, and says, good grief, mm-hmm. mother. That's a great question. Let me go. Let me go stick my career on answering that. And, so, <laughs> and she doesn't remember asking me the question, but what? Ah, wow, wow, wow. That sounds like me. I'm like, yes, it was. <laughs> that was definitely. <laughs> oh yes, and uh, my mother. Uh, hello, mom. Uh, will definitely be listening to this, and I know I have many stories of her uh, asking me very, uh, very important but simple questions like that, and I doubt that she will remember. But mom. You, after listening to this, you'll probably remember something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so um, also um, as a way for people to understand, uh, because typically when people think about the South, the, the, the word urban in front of the South that you use in your title might not exactly be something that people think about uh, that they foreground, because when people think of the, um, because when people think of, of the, um, of the South, they typically think of where they think. They, or I mean, when they think of urban, excuse me, they think of where they think of, you know, the North. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, can you tell us a bit about uh, why you chose urban, the urban South, when it came to 
to this? I think a couple reasons. First uh, and foremost is I wanted to study an area that had a consistent school year. And Mm -hmm. uh, the rural South education was haphazard. And I wanted to know why things sustained. And I felt at the time, like, well, we know a lot about the plantation schools. We know that they're not sustaining, but schools aren't being shut down. The state's not investing all this money in this thing. So where are they investing the money? And what is it about the city that allows for these schools to sustain and then trickle into the rural areas? And as I was delving into the question of why did they sustain, I started getting fascinated by looking at some of the schools in the cities, in particular, the cities that trained these activists that we think about at the turn of the century and the early long civil rights movement. And I started looking at like, oh, there's Richmond, there's New Orleans, there's Memphis. What's going on here? And then as I started going into the Freedmen's Bureau records initially, and then the state records, I always followed the money. And the city schools are doing something different. They're getting a lot of state resources. And I just knew it wasn't because of white sympathy that they were getting state resources. So that suggested to me that it was um, black activism and a lot more going on. And I wanted to know what that was and how it functioned. And in the end, by going into the urban South, I was able to spell some of the myths I had because I only knew about the general rural South and black education. And that got me to correct some of my uh, presuppositions about what was going on because there was something different and something interesting. And then also too, they had a long school year and consistent school year. And I just wanted to know over time and track trends. So for me, I fell upon the cities. And then once I got in, I'm like, no, this is where the story is. And this is where I need to go. And and that is a really a profound, um, that's really of a profound uh, importance because, you know, I'm, and, and this is part of the reason why I asked about, you know, whether or not you can give a definition on the urban South and, and why you use it. Because I don't, like, when I first saw your, your, uh, your book, I was like, urban South? Oh, snap. Yeah. Richmond and all these different, uh, you know, Mobile and these other places. I'm like, yeah, that is true. They're, yeah. <laughs> we only urban. talk There's about the cities. cities in the 20th century. And I'm like, well, those cities existed beforehand. <laughs> Why don't we know mm-hmm. about them? And um, so I started diving into that literature and I realized I'm like, OK, we really still are talking about black experience like Norfolk. It's like in the 19 teens and 20s. I'm like, what happened earlier? Where do these people come from? Where do these institutions come from? And I started diving into Howard Rubinowitz's work um, and some of those other early books on Urban South, um, included David um, Goldfield and others. And I wasn't satisfied. I wanted to know deeper and longer, but I knew I wasn't crazy. (laughs) And that Mm -hmm. there were some scholars who were trying to do the work and they were fighting. I'm like, okay. If they're doing this, I could find something too. And that, and then um, Michael Fitzgerald's book on Mobile and politics. Um, once I picked that up and read it, I'm like, oh, this is helping me get to where I need to go. There's something about the cities, and there's something about the black experience in the cities that is still untold. But this will help me get to that larger question about why these schools sustain themselves. And and that is. 
yeah, that's so that's so really cool. Like I, I'm really, I'm re- for one, I'm really happy to have you on the show because uh, for for many reasons. Obviously, we talked about offline as well, um, but it's because you know the the importance of Black education in this period. Um, and, and and one of the parts I enjoyed most about your book that I definitely want to delve m- much more into was the the collaboration and and the enmeshed nature of education to citizenship. Yes. Um. And and, and would you be able to talk to us about um you know how you uh you know as we get into the book um why that uh why that continuity was something that I felt throughout the entirety of your book. I think this is where um, working with my advisor at UNC, Chapel Hill, Heather Williams, James Anderson, and these giants have really shown, and um, including the early literature on Richard and others, is that African Americans coming out of slavery came out with knowledge that what freedom should look like by how they were treated during slavery. So they came out with, I couldn't be educated during slavery. Therefore, as a citizen, I can be educated now. And so they came up with some very things that they were willing to fight for. And I think education was a path to both resistance and fighting back and able to run away, but also to able to get out jobs and opportunities uh, for themselves and to move up socially. Um, The war years also in terms of blackmail enlistment and having those first fruits of schools um, then in the camps. And I think one is the very two institutions that you can see right away after freedom are schools and churches. And, uh-huh. and they learned that from slavery. So how do they take something that was ingrained to them to deny them rights and to keep them in bondage and treat it as um, chattel? And those who were free and not enslaved prevent them from moving up in society and keeping them in a state of poverty. They learn quickly that there's something about education. There's something about being able to define and learn because that's going to be mobility out of the road and the best way to show that they are no longer slaves by able to read and write. It's a way to push back, to fight back, and to fight against the systems that kept them in bondage and the racial underpinnings that kept them being discriminated against. So I think it's something that in reading the literature and then reading the sources, you can just see it coming off the page. We want schools. When they're talking about the early, um, the songs that they're singing, they're talking about singing in the schoolroom. No more in the fields, but we're in the schoolroom. We're in the churches. They just came out wanting that. And I was like, so I had to listen to them a lot more. But schools, they were just, they knew from the beginning schools, churches, and then eventually just being left alone. That's all they wanted. And and that that connection is really profound because when when you look at, you know, what was some you know, like what was something that was uh that that enslavers and such always wanted to to fight against and that was, you know, black literacy. Yes. Um and, and as a central way for them to, and, and I definitely got this from your book, um, was that the way to fight back was to be able to take back what, you know, what was largely lost and, you know, fighting for that literacy and fighting for the educational spaces. Um, because as you spoke about before, you know, the institutions that were always the ones that sprouted up the earliest were churches mm-hmm. and 
and, and schools, if not in the same place, like we have, you know, up in Boston, a place that we both know pretty well when it comes to a place that I used to work at, um, at, at the African meeting house. Yes. Um, you know, Susan Paul and, and all those folks down there. And, and so we're up there for, for both of us because we're both in the South, but, um, and, uh, and, and as well, um, can you speak to us a bit about, um, you know, what was, what was the environment like when these schools were beginning to sprout up in the beginning of the years that you speak about in 1865 and going on for the, the first couple years during the actual, uh, uh, during the popularly known reconstruction period? What, what was that like? Well, one of the first things that I, I always am amazed that schools came every, anywhere where they had a space, they could be in a field because they, they're in the middle of the ruins of war, especially in Richmond and the burnt system, mm. uh, cities and stuff. So they're meeting in any available space. Um, and African-Americans reclaiming spaces that were tied to their enslavement, um, including Richmond, the old um, slave pens, um, meeting outside in a field, meeting where there was a hospital, meeting in the camps. They're not meeting always in these traditional schoolhouses that we think of. They're just finding any available space that they can, finding a teacher who's willing to teach them. So these early schools can be these ad hoc spaces that could have up to 50 to 200, 400 people in. And then you have one teacher for probably at 40, 50 students, which is unheard of when you think about today's Mm. learning environment and pretty much teaching on the rudimentaries of just the ABCs and math, uh, math and other things, and they're just doing this open fields and then then working. And then for children during the day that can go to school at night, they're replaced by adults. So I'm thinking about the teachers who are working round the clock and the students who are just there and flocking that they outgrew the spaces. And oftentimes they're doing this without any um, advice or input by white Americans. So one of the things I found interesting in both cities and in other places is that African Americans are creating their own schools before there's an actual restored government, before there's any teachers coming in. They are finding the talents among those around them. And over time, that system that becomes more formalized. You have the Freedmen's Bureau coming in, then you have the um, the their, uh, various philanthropies coming in, and then you have African Americans on the ground. So it's this negotiation of, okay, you're willing to give me books, you're sending down the material, so that relationship that way, but also that pushing back, like, you know, I don't like your, I don't like this teacher, they don't treat me with respect, I'm going to go move to another school that I can get what I need. Or, oh, this church uh, doesn't require me to pay money for fuel during wintertime. Well, I'm going to go there for the winter and go back to the spring (laughs) when it's warmer somewhere else. Mm. And they're using their feet a lot, but they're always sitting there in the overcrowded conditions to get as much learning as possible. And then they're then teaching one another and then going back in their communities. So it's this... I think the best learning environment possible that learning is not confined to a space. 
it's a communal effort and one another helping one another to build this educated class. And they're sharing knowledge and they're learning from one another. And they are also telling one another, this agency is good. Work with this teacher. They don't discriminate against you. We want teachers like this individual. We don't want these former white slave owners who are who are former owners teaching us. We want someone else. And they're finding white or black individuals who are sympathetic, who want to treat them with humanity and with respect and dignity. They'll flock to those people. And then when they have enough learning, they want to create their own spaces and not have to rely on others. So they're getting as much as they can so they can become self-sufficient even in the educational spaces. And and as far as resources go, um, where are they where are they sourcing their resources from? You know, books, are we talking about missionaries? What um where, where are they getting, you know, not only some of their teachers um as far as you know, once they are able to get um the, the infrastructure, but also uh, who who's helping them out in the in this outset? So I know that there were a lot of missionaries coming down from the Civil War that may have still still been down there potentially. Yeah. So for a lot of it, they started in house. They started with those okay. who were educated among them, uh, former soldiers, anyone who acquired and, and stole their own education during slavery, uh, teaching them. But then they start to realize, and they're pulling among one their other their own resources. They're also pulling money together to build a permanent structure. So instead of buying their own house, they're buying the communal space and they're giving their time to build up those spaces. Then they're working with groups, uh, Richmond in particular, Richmond, everyone fought to go to Richmond because it's the former capital of the Confederacy. So at one point, there's like 15 different agencies working in the city and they are sending missionaries without anyone requesting them. And then they're finding a black community like, oh, you're willing to help. Please, we need this. And then that's how the relationship started. But in other cases, like Mobile, they only have like um, the one agency coming down from Chicago into the city and then the American Missionary Association coming in. But they're writing agencies for books, including out Boston, um, the um, several societies out Boston and New York City. And they're writing them directly and just like, hey, we need books. Send us clothes. Send us this. And they're building relationships because they have the ally, the Freedmen's Bureau, too. And the Freedmen's Bureau is that clearinghouse in being able to, one, tell them where to apply, where to write, and then other knowledge that they can't supplement on their own. They're acquiring it very quickly by either the black newspapers that get established in uh, Mobile, for instance, the Nationalists, um, using that as a clearinghouse for spaces to find where resources are and the advertisements in the back. They're also using it as an informal textbook. And you see this in both Richmond and Mobile. So if they don't have textbooks, they'll pull out the newspaper and and use the newspaper as their textbook. Use the Bible as their textbook until they can get a a northern agency to send them those books or work with the Freedmen's Bureau to get those resources in. And and that and, and, and that just shows like they're they're real fortuitiveness right they're they're just they're just going going at it because they they see the the importance uh of of the moment and and seizing the opportunities and and seizing literacy when they can um and 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 i think that um 
in the face of uh, contemporary uh, embattlements over uh, public education, uh, which <laughs> we won't go there. But um, <laughs> but but I think we might know what we're talking about there. Yes. But um, but nevertheless, when we look at the importance of education, um, because for some odd reason, there's a stereotype that African Americans. Uh, and, and, and education and literacy that, you know, there, there's, there, you know, there's these things that stories are still uh, really foregrounded because of this particular period. But what one part um, that I really appreciate the most about your book in part is how there's so many stories of ingenuity um, in, involved with, with the, the, the individual characters and the communities that are involved here as well. So would you be able to touch upon some of that as well since we're on that topic? Yeah, I think that's one of the things I wanted to emphasize in the book, that education um, was not given to African-Americans. They wanted it. They found opportunities in development. It wasn't imposed on them. And the stereotypes that Black education was imposed by Northern states and things. No, they came up with what they wanted, and they were clear on what they wanted from the beginning. And it's their own ingenuity. It's their own active desire to define freedom in which education was at the core. And they developed that as individuals, but as communities, that this is what they wanted and used all resources. And I think that's one of the things that's missing from current day understandings and uh, this stereotype that African-Americans never valued education. And this period shows everything but that. It shows not only did they value that, they put that above everything else um, to help one another in the community. And they really believed in the we, not the me. And I think that is very crucial for this time because they're starting, they're building a system of schools from the ground up. They had the least of all resources they had some had the clothes on their backs, but yet they built a whole system of schools and found um, collaborators, white and black, made concessions um, when needed. But ultimately, their goal was to become an educated people. And that's what they fought for and kept on continuing to make perfect. And once they got the rudimentaries of that system, then they were like, and then enshrined that system that was built from nothing and was illegal to a state right and have it enshrined in the state constitutions and then demand the government that once kept had laws to keep them enslaved. Now they have to def- uh, defend their rights by giving them dollars to uphold those schools, employ teachers, have new bureaucracies to uphold this public school system. That trajectory is something I think needs to be told and more people need to understand more because what they did is so miraculous. I don't know if we could do that today. And they did it with nothing. And that's what I think is very interesting. We of the present have all the resources in the world. They had the least of resources and they did something that was so foundational and changed the entire educational system that one, not only recognized black students and um, as uh, people who could be educated, but transformed those communities that we can talk about this black educator middle class that will need it to be to persist and to fight and to continue on this long struggle to make 
the schoolhouse, but also the African-American community into what it is today. Very, very important. And, and you know, you, you highlighted this before. It's like when you ain't got no other choice, you got to do what you got to do, you know, and, and, and that that and that sentiment um, goes directly to what um, African-Americans and their allies educationally were able to do. Um, and, and also something that, you know, I'm not an educational or black educational historian, but something that I had always that I'd heard uh, very recently was that um, when it came to the Reconstruction era, if you look at some of the states that you're that you're looking at, um, you know, maybe Alabama and Virginia and, and other places in general, the South, for the most part, did not have a public educational system until after or, or during and or after the Reconstruction era, exactly. where, surprisingly enough, African-American legislators at the state and federal level were empowered. Hmm. Is there, is, is there a connection there? And then also, too, Black desires for freedom is what is what we take for granted today. Because it's black desires for public schools that lay the foundation for the modern day public school system of these southern states. And to deny black politicians the Reconstruction Acts and this political force from being illegal to legal for everyone. And it's a sign of inclusiveness and democracy in its true form and not retaliation and not being vengeful. But we're going to transform the society to affect everyone that everyone benefits that uh, from the system, I think it's also key. And it's Black politicians working with white allies and the Republican governments that are able to work in this biracial cross-class system to make a true democratic society that was so radically different than what it preceded it before. And and what, in, in, in that, that D word, democracy, uh, uh, that that word is something that I don't think I think people take for granted um, that to have a Democrat uh, to have a, a democratic society um, in educated masses is not just important. It's essential. Um, and and your book, Educational Reconstruction, you know, that that's directly tied to, you know, um, uh, African-American notions of what freedom actually meant. It was that to not be barred, uh, to, 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 to not be barred from educational attainment. And so especially when people today say, well, why don't you just work harder? Well, if, if, if you kind of get that foot off my neck a little bit, I, I feel like I'd do a little much, I'd probably do a little better. <laughs> so, exactly. And it's that dem- democratic system that these reconstruction governments established in Virginia and Alabama, South Carolina just dedicated a marker to its convention that had to be overturned and systematically dismantled because they were so successful. So how do you do this? You have to take it apart <laughs> piece by piece. Piece so they, by piece. So they succeeded where... This is one of those those periods in American history that's so misunderstood, but I think it's so instructive for today. And we need to know more because the dismantling is is had as the building up. So why was it successful? And I think that's where the biggest uh, question I come for standing for why, because these people were new education, democracy and a racially inclusive world is what they were building. And that vision 
motivated them at all to everything that they did. And in that vision, if we were all on that vision today, I think we were in a different place. So how can we learn from that vision and that commitment and that perseverance and being willing to deal with setbacks and creating a true democratic society, I think is one of the greatest lessons that we can get by looking at these schools. On the topic of setbacks, um, what were some of the setbacks that uh, that educators and, and families and, and and folks faced um, in, in this post-war period in, in Richmond and, and Mobile? Violence. I cannot mm. underscore how violent this period was, uh, whether it's real violence um, in case of Mobile arson. The schools keep on getting burned down. And every time a school gets burned down, that means African-American money and financial resources have to be pulled in to rebuild another school. So how much money is lost by people burning down the institutions that are learning because they see it as a threat? Um, also in both cities, just teachers getting attacked, physically getting beaten up, dragged out of houses, um, school children in Richmond. One of the stories I remember um, is um, in Richmond at one of the reunions, they're talking about the daily rock fights that the white children and black children had every day going to school. I'm like, they're getting pelted by rocks. This is not <laughs> by mm. other children. This is this is not this easy. Oh, I'm going to go to school and that's going to happen. This is like you're going to battle every day just to walk to school and back. And then you're commented afterwards when you're successful that this was fun <laughs> and mm. making light of it. But just the violence in there. And I thought by looking at schools, I thought it'd be like, oh, everyone agreed on schools. No, they did not. <laughs> and also, too, the rhetorical violence, the newspapers, the white newspapers never talked about the black schools unless it was to denigrate a teacher denigrate the learning and it was all these stereotypes and i think the shift when you see the shift from our schools to include white and black schools that's when they finally accept it but when they talk about our schools in the 1860s and early on they only talked about white only spaces and they lived in this fantasy that the other thing wasn't going on at all and that allowed them to sustain um the arsonists it allowed them to sustain the we can fight and have two school boards in the case of Mobile to dismantle the system by throwing these political obstacles in the way. And also to um, the courts being used to bring up arrest charges on teachers. In the case of Richmond, he gets uh, one of the teachers gets involved with a seduction case in which the white community convinces a black father to sue this teacher and bring him to court. Over. So just the fraud and the violence, both rhetorical and real, is one of the key uh, uh, obstacles. The second one is funding. Public schools are expensive. And when you look mm-hmm. at the Freedman School period and the thousands of dollars that are being funded and coming in from the North, the South, and internationally, and then states have to take over. And public schools and the funding given could not have enough seats for every child seeking education and this to get more and more money. So not having a sufficient amount of funding to sustain the demand of black desire to become educated in which most of the money was going to black schools because they're the people are attending them. And that still wasn't enough. 
So between the violence and not being accepted by the white community and this clear opposition to not having sufficient amount of money to sustain the desires of the black community desiring education is the two biggest obstacles that they faced. And then if I had to give a third, teachers, not, not having enough teachers. And um, black teachers became the preferred, but they would be okay with sympathetic white teachers who were not hindering black success and actually cared about this democratic society that recognizes black humanity. So sustaining and having a number of educated teachers that fulfilled all the state requirements for teaching because they're now state employees. So they have to be trained and have degrees and all this other bureaucracy so they can get a job. <laughs> having mm-hmm. that is the next thing. Those are the three, I would say those are the three top obstacles for them. And and all three were very, very, very uh, treacherous to, to try to get through. Um, yes. Because, you know, on the first part, violence, um, you know, I I just talked to you offline about you know the the thought of violence when when I got lost on a mountain in in Cherokee, North Carolina. I, I was scared out of my out yeah. of mind, and uh, and just 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 that, right? I've never had anything knock on wood like that happen. But it's so intriguing how black cultural memory will infect your mind in that way of you know though nothing has ever happened to me the knowledge that something like that happened to ancestors mm-hmm. will just totally change right there was a time i even uh uh i was driving actually to atlanta from tallahassee for the first time and uh my friends and i were driving up to the atlanta classic football game between famu go rattlers and tennessee state and what happens is we drew all, all four of us are driving in the car and we pass by a cotton field. Now we're all we're all suburban kids, mm-hmm. you know, from the south, but we're suburban kids. And we had I just remember just just our bodies just all just 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 froze. It, they just you know just just pressured up. We had never picked cotton before, but it's because exactly. of our knowledge of what happened because of folks you know uh, that our ancestors had done it under the yoke of enslavement. And so when I hear about the, you know, and re- read about the stories of, and the diff- so many different stories of violence um, that occurred just because people wanted to be educated. Exactly. Just and because people wanted to to be free in a quote unquote free nation or so it said. And then also too the their perseverance, their drive, because I know myself, I'm not, how would I respond to this situation? And the fact that a lot of times, yes, I know they experience hurt. I know they experience pain. But at the same time, when they start fighting, they draw on that violence and make it a positive good. The way they will, um, in the case of Mobile, when they start openly challenging people saying, you you have to be dumb as oysters if you're not going to give us a black teacher. You have to be this. That's driving their drive to make sure that they are cemented because they know they're right. And how they transform that violent experience into a tool of empowerment. Just, I marveled at that because I'm not sure if I would be that type of person who would be able to do that same thing in that situation. And so for me, the first time I went to Mobile, 
and I saw the site of Emerson Institute, the marker that's there. And then when I went to Richmond recently and I saw the site or I knew where the corner was where a school existed, I just remember going there and saying, thank you for everything you did because Mm. you were braver than most people are ever in their lifetimes are. And you left this testament where it's enshrined and a marker in the case of Mobile, but in my memory, that as an educator today, how can I fulfill that legacy? And I think that's one of the things, too, that memory and that legacy and seeing people struggle and that selflessness, too, also help empower that current resistance to keep on pushing forward. And and that's why, uh, you know, I, I think I picked up your book and um, Dr. Tr- uh, Dr. Uh, Monty Perry's book, uh, May We Forever Stand, about the history, uh, the uh, history of the Black National Anthem. And when I think about the perseverance and the story that you just brought up, it brought back memories of my interview and my reading of her book. Because to me, reading both of yours, like almost side by side, it, they're both stories that are that are enmeshed within each other uh, in periods that are a bit, you know, a little bit, uh, for, mm-hmm. a little bit apart. Uh, but, you know, the the direct nature of perseverance. What are you getting by? What are you, you know, what are you trying to fight against? Uh, not only fight against, but what are you trying to fight for as well? Um, Because I think that's another important story, because I think sometimes we we try to always try over against this and this, which is fine, isolated. But there's something to be said for what are you for? Like, who are you and what are you for? And for for the many people that you chronicled in, in, in educational reconstruction, we saw what they were for. And so we also see the the incivility, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. That uh, that that was enmeshed. And so in this contemporary moment mm-hmm. of calling for civility, let's let's, let's look at the chronicling of the history uh, of the opposite of, yes. of that. And uh, that's another thing we won't talk about. Mm-hmm. But I think we all understand what that where we're going yeah. with that one. And the other thing in this struggle too is um, they were also human. And I liked how they also made mistakes and they made some alliances mm. that probably should not have. But I understand why, like the American Missionary Association in Mobile, that was fraught. <laughs> but they were willing mm-hmm. to do that rather than deal with Josiah Knott or deal with the very open use of arson to destroy everything that they had to build. So they were having these allies that they on a normal basis, there probably would have been like, no, we don't need them, but we need them for now. And once we can shed them, we will <laughs> type of thing. And in Richmond, some of the choices they made initially over the schools in the 70s were they only concerned about their neighborhood. And my neighborhood has black teachers, but yours doesn't. And then it becomes like, oh, no, we need all because it'll affect us. So these <laughs> these different moments of them being human and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes amid this violent realm, I think, was also really good to see that in the light of everything, they proved that they made some bad decisions at times and some good ones, too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and I believe that to be true because I think sometimes as well, we get so caught up in trying to be right all the time or just being correct um, in everything that, you know, the, 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 the direct nature of what it means to be human is that your mistakes should not be the death of you. 
Yes. Your mistakes should not be something that now, obviously, mistake and, you know, what the actual mistake is, right? That's per situation. So let me let me put that out there in general. Um, but I mean, so and we should also think about how for for African-Americans, largely when in the educational context, mistakes we haven't always had the same opportunity to make mistakes and still be able to come back the next day or to be able to come back and still be able to do the work. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest things about this, that that luxury of being civil or incivil and where African-Americans came in and learning from those mistakes were they big ones or they little ones, how to argue do you have a public front and then in behind the scenes that you're quibbling with one another? And you could see the calculations going throughout this whole period and the working outs that had to be done so that these mistakes don't go to the complete shutdown of schools and um, learning to when to retreat from a situation when you realize that that fear and that larger goal of this might be a more permanent irreparable mistake is a um, mm. when to retreat from that. And I'm thinking about in Mobile when they had the boycotts over the black teachers being hired and all of their white allies, even the more progressive ones said, we don't agree with this. And the black community had to concede, even though they, dis- mm. they should have had a black teacher They should have had no problems. These individuals should have been hired. The city was blocking them. And yes, there was racism there. But when their allies completely abandoned them during this um, boycott, they had to reassess quickly. And in the end, they were able to later on get um, the one um, new school at the end that had a normal training program. But they had to learn to back off quickly and to assess their situation. So they were very savvy operators. And I think mm-hmm. for them, the luxury to let mistakes happen was slim. But if they did, they had to realize, oh, wait, we can't do this. Let's correct and what we need to do. And I think that's where um, having both cities, Mobile and Richmond together, because they both have issues on both sides, but for different reasons. But you can see that savvy nature of the community working together, minimizing mistakes, celebrating the successes, and then keep on pushing the bar for quality. And like, okay, we got this. What's the next thing we're fighting for? <laughs> And that vision Mm -hmm. of education and then quality education is what they kept on going forward and how they were able to move the setbacks that were real and did hurt, but also the successes and um, move and move in a way that the schools never shut down. States did not abandon, completely abandon and eradicate public schools. I think that's amazing. That's amazing feat. And also, to their humanity in this process and the concessions, the compromises, where they're active agents, who are the leaders, who are the foot soldiers. That's the story I try to really emphasize in the book. And I think in, in the final minutes that we have you here today, Dr. Green, um, for me, I, I think one of the largest takeaways is something 
maybe the largest takeaway for me from your book um, is actually something that you just mentioned is how as I sit in the state of North Carolina, as you sit in the state of Alabama, as I'm from Florida, as you know, we've been to these different places in the South, um, we meet black public school children uh, and and students uh, rather. Um, and they are the largest legacy, right? Yes. And the entire infrastructure of public education in the South coming directly after the Civil War in places where largely African-Americans were ensconced in state governments. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me personally, the part that I appreciated the most, not only the perseverance, not only you know what they were actually able to do, but also looking at the legacy in our contemporary moment. Um, so now that I've said mine, what, as, as the author of the text, yes. um, as someone who did the research, right, mm-hmm. over the course of many long, grueling years, as we all know, um, yes. what, what are one or two of the largest takeaways that you've been able to, to gain um, as you traverse, you know, a life as a, as a scholar, um, what are some of the takeaways that you can take from your book and maybe transfer maybe even into your life um, or just in general, I guess, a general question? Um, a couple things. First, I think we need a quality education movement um, like the 1870s and 80s. And I'm thinking about Reverend Barber calling for a third reconstruction. We need a... Mm another quality school campaign for today where we still have to fight with funding, accommodations, school board representation, and also teachers. I think also too, um, and I've been thinking around a lot, do we need a Blair bill? Do we need a Blair bill Mm. that you can't use vouchers for and it only goes to the public schools based on the testing scores? Can, can you can and, you uh, before before you get a little too further? Can you explain briefly the Blair Bill? Yeah, the Blair Bill, um, where I end the um, book, would have I think resolved a lot of the issues of funding that even with the best efforts, African Americans and their white allies could not resolve. It would have brought seventy seven million dollars to public education based on rates of illiteracy. And it would have affected both white and black education. But because of when it's being um, fought for, it would have most of the money would have went to southern schools. And if we would have had that federal bill, seventy seven million dollars in their money, I, I can't even translate. All uh, right. I can't even. Yeah, that, that's a that's, whew, that's a whopper Distrib- right there. And we ain't talking Burger King. Yeah. Distributed over 10 years. What public school and then bringing back a federal oversight of that money so it does not go in the grease the hands of corrupt school board officials that would have been huge. What would we do that today if we brought the equivalent of that to public schools and only public schools, not ones, not charter schools, not on vouchers, not people going in, but the actual public schools in these predominantly urban school districts that are attended by black and brown children in which we still have school board members that don't think they deserve an quality education. 
And the other is for me um, and the adults who know this history, but also I'm a product of the public schools. Um, I went to K through 12 in Brockton, um, the Brockton public schools. I'm a proud public school attendee. Shouts out Brockton. Shouts out Brockton. Yeah. Yes. And what can I do with my knowledge to make my schools and my community the best that they can all be? How, uh, and for me, I attend a lot of school board meetings. They're quite interesting. I participate locally in, um, book drives to make sure that the school that's up the road, uh, Westlawn um, Middle School, actually has books in their classroom for in-class library because they have one of the worst um, rates of reading um, scores in the city as well as the state. How can I train that next generation of teachers in my class at the University of Alabama to be like the teachers that were in Mobile, white and black, who cared about their community and not a paycheck. I think if we had all of that, I think we can learn these valuable lessons from educational reconstruction and apply them for today. And yeah, we have more resources and we're not building from the ground up, but what can we do to bring about meaningful change and make the desire to become a fully educated citizen? involved in all aspects of politics, whether it's at the local level, the school level, and then the national level, and have that language and tools to fight the larger injustices in the world and create a really democratic society. Those are the things I think about all the time and try to do my part, whether it's in this book or in my community today. And and that 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 quest for the full realization that you just mentioned i think one of the greatest but also unfortunate parts are or or is is that you know the, they're largely aspirational in the sense of they're in front of us there are things that we're pushing towards so that means that we're not looking in the background yeah. to go get them there's still things that we as active agents mm-hmm. in the society we can still be able to make true and that even though we might not get there to be able to see it, the important part is that we are activated to make a change in and everywhere we can. And considering this is a Wednesday after an important election day, Mm -hmm. um, your words are even more present and important because of what just happened and what potentially could be happening down the line at the ending of this year. Um, so, so I definitely appreciate um, your, your phenomenal uh, uh, historical work. And um, we, I definitely appreciate you for coming on the program. And so uh, lastly, um, if, if you don't mind uh, indulging us, uh, we, we, we sometimes like to get a little greedy here on the New Books and African American <laughs> Studies channel. Um, because we enjoy the interview so, so much, but we also want to know what we can look forward to in the future. Uh, uh, what, 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 uh, what are you working on presently that you might be able to tell us? We understand, you know, trade secrets, but you know, any and everything that you can mention, we would, we would definitely love to indulge. I am working on two projects concurrently. Um, First is a second book project with Fordham University Press on how everyday how everyday African-Americans remembered and commemorated the Civil War. So I am going from central Pennsylvania 
and oh, the my. free African Americans at the Maryland Pennsylvania line that were okay. stolen from by Lee and Confederate um, troops during Gettysburg and sold into uh. slavery and how to um, the Charleston and the discovery of 15 um, soldiers from the Massachusetts 55th Regiment during um, the building of a hotel in um, Folly Beach, South Carolina during the 80s. So I'm going from Civil War to close to the present, but with the attune of how African-Americans remembered as a form of politics and their tool and their resistance against the world around them. And then the second project has to do with Civil War memory, but on the Confederate memorial side. I'm co-editing a volume with Kevin Levin on the Confederate memorial debates from their inception and the dedication speeches up to the present. So going up to some of the modern um, literature of today as a reader. So anyone, high schooler, college student who wants to read original primary source documents to understand the, the present debates will have access to that. So those are my two current wow. projects. Wow. And and I actually met Kevin Levin at a at a book event for Douglas Edgerton at Mass Historical uh, I think it was earlier this year. So so that's interesting. Uh, wow. So so Boston is definitely in the house right now. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah. And um, actually, you know, you what you just mentioned with your with your final two or your, your present two projects, um, it made me think about I had seen something online about the work that you're doing at the University of Alabama. Um, would you be able to speak a bit about that as well um, so that we can highlight uh, the work that you're doing at your home, home institution? Yeah, so one of the things I do here, I am known for the Hallowed Ground Tours, which explores the role, um, slavery at the University of Alabama. And um, I've researched and developed a walk-in tour in which we go around the surviving buildings that's uh, from the institution of slavery, from the first building on the institution um, to the one of the last surviving buildings, but also the legacy on the campus history throughout the up from the end of slavery and the structure of campus to the present. And um, I have so far reached about four thousand people in person. Wow. And I am, um, I because of that, and I'm only one person. Um, I have developed a digital version of that, and my goal is to bring some of those documents to as um, so people can research on their own. But yeah, so I get to walk the campus, um, talk about how the slavery is enshrined, including the building that my uh, my office is in is named after Basil Manley, who. Wow. Gave the Oprah prayer to Jefferson Davis's um, inauguration. So I I live the Civil War memory and slave past memory every day. And this way, I say the uh, the names of the enslaved people that I have identified and connect them to the buildings that they worked at and to remember that past as I am a faculty member at UA. Hey, gotta say their name. Gotta say their name. Um, wow, and and the degrees of separation. Sometimes you think they're a little further, but good God Almighty, every now and again they get a little close. They get yes, a little close. Or in your case, uh, maybe so uh, wrapped around. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but but nevertheless, um, I'll I'll make sure to put that in the show notes to to mm-hmm. to to make sure that folks have links to 
to the work that you're doing phenomenally at the University of Alabama. And for those of y'all who may not know, the SEC, that is in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, for, for, I guess, Roll Tide. Uh, Roll Tide. So, <laughs> good grief. Um, and so just to, just to let everyone know, we have been talking with Dr. Hillary Green at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, about her phenomenal book published in 2016 by our new great friends at Fordham University Press entitled Educational Reconstruction, African-American Schools in the Urban South, from 1865 to 1890. And so once again, folks, on behalf of Adam McNeil over here at, the, at New Books and African American Studies, I am so appreciative of having Dr. Green on to just drop the knowledge on all of us. It has been phenomenal. And we already hear about the two projects that she's coming up with. And so most definitely she will be on again with her blessing, of course. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Adam, so much. Very good. Until next time, folks, Adam McNeil, New Books Network's African American Studies Channel. Ciao.